The Grow Kinder podcast features conversations with thought leaders in education, business, tech, and the arts, who all share one thing in common, a dedication to growing kinder in their work and lives, and helping others do the same. Brought to you by Committee for Children. Today, we talk with Angela Duckworth, author of the New York Times bestseller, Grit. She is founder and CEO of Character Lab, a nonprofit whose mission is to advance the science and practice of character development. A 2013 MacArthur Fellow, Angela has advised the White House, the World Bank, NBA and NFL teams, and Fortune 500 CEOs. Angela talks with us about the role parents play in character development and what it means to be career ready today. Here are your hosts, Andrea and Mia. Did you do the grit scale? No. Did Should you? we do it? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. I don't think I'm going to do very well on it. Well, I feel like people... Be gritty about the scale. No, you have to be very honest about it. Okay, I'll be very honest. Okay, I'm doing this too. My score's not very good, Andrea. What is it? Mine's 2.8. So it's on a scale of zero to five. <laughs> Mine isn't good, but I'm going to explain why. Oh, okay. <laughs> Mine's 4.3. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. But I have a lot of concern over if I have enough self-awareness to accurately judge well, my grit scale. Okay. So a lot of the questions are about, do you get new interests mm-hmm. and things? And I do. That's my job. My job is to come up with new things. I don't know what to say about that. I feel like there are things about me personally that are hard to stick with, like exercise. When is it a goal that's set for you by society? Mm-hmm. versus a goal that you set for yourself. And and I think one of the things about grit that she says is there's passion there. Mm-hmm. So it's when it's a thing you really want to do that you're highly engaged in and you persist at it. And I think that I applied that a lot to school because I felt as a grade schooler, I didn't want to go to school. I hated it. Like I really didn't want to be there, but I wasn't that interested in a lot of what we're doing. And I think I felt like a lot of it was pretty It's like, once I learned that, why do I have to keep doing it? Mm -hmm. You know, like, Mm -hmm. why am I having to practice this math formula over and over again? I've demonstrated that I learned it. Like, it didn't make sense to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It felt like a wasted time if Mm -hmm. I'd already learned the thing. Mm -hmm. And then once I had more choice about things in middle school and high school, I was really engaged. I was like, I can learn a language or I can pick these things that I like had more personal passion for. Right. Then I was a much better, more committed student once I could do that. You know, it is a combination of having passion for something, even though it's really hard. In some ways, there's a way to kind of cultivate for kids, you know, things that are hard and things that you do for fun. Mm -hmm. And I think that the hope is that at some point they kind of merge. I hate doing my taxes. When I sit down to do it, I just know it's going to be my worst day. Like (laughs) It's going to be the worst day of whatever month I decide Mm -hmm. to do them in. I do it beforehand, usually like within a month beforehand, because I don't want to get too close to the deadline, but I hate it to the point that it hurts me physically, mm-hmm. but you know, you have to do it. It's going to be worse if you don't do it, I right. guess is what I always think. Like the later you wait, the worse it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just wonder what the interplay then is. It's like, that's not grit, right? That's maybe self-regulation. Right. There's a thing I have to do or the consequences. It's like, I think about my nephew who one time when he was really little, He's pretty ADD. And he, when he was little, he told me, Auntie Mia, you know how you just don't want to do what you don't want to do? <laughs> he just said those words. He goes, you know how you don't want to do what you don't want to do? And I looked at him and I'm like, yes, mm-hmm. I know exactly what you mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you really don't. 
And I think it's harder for some people than others. Yeah. They released some new research on procrastination. So a lot of people are sort of like, you're lazy or Mm -hmm. something. But really, it's related to anxiety and perfectionism. Yes, that's right. Are you more or less gritty? Like if you do it eventually, but you don't, you know, it's like, are the people who start, who go after it right right away, away, (laughs) more gritty than the people who wait five years? I mean, it's got to, it's probably just more brave or something Mm -hmm. or courageous, right? Like Mm -hmm. they know it's going to be hard. They're just going to do it right now anyway. Mm -hmm. Or they like less risk averse maybe. When Silas asked me about being brave, like because we read about it in books and things, he says, you know, what is being brave? And I tell him it's knowing something is going to be hard but it's the right thing to do mm-hmm. and you do it even though it's hard or, or you don't want to, or you don't want to, but you know, it's right. So you right. do it. Did I tell you about the spider incident? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you like ran away I love from this story. nest No, you have spiders. to say it again. It was like, I love this story. We discovered a giant spider behind our couch, but also an army of various types of spiders. Apparently that's a thing they do. That's called a community of spiders where they're different types of spiders, but they gather together to share resources which is like terrifying in and of itself. Yes, but we it found is. it behind the couch. We were looking and for it was a toy. There for a long time. It, it must have, I mean, <laughs> yes. And there was obviously like, I mean, the big one was really big. And I was like, that's the general. <laughs> <You know? laughs> There's a toy back there. And I kind of lowered Silas behind the couch by his ankles to get the toy because it was far enough away that he wouldn't, which he totally did. And then, <laughs> then I decided we were going to get rid of these spiders. So they got their flashlights. I pulled the couch out a little, very slowly. They're shining the flashlights down. I get the uh, vacuum cleaner, but I have terrible spatial reasoning. I just, I can't always tell if it's going to be long enough or fit or whatever. Right. It totally wasn't. So I stick it down there. I turn it on. It doesn't get a single spider to start and the spiders scatter and the kids scream like, My daughter drops her flashlight down, falls backwards off the couch. (laughs) Silas and her both are sort of screaming. Then I readjust. I get them sucked up into the vacuum. (laughs) They're sucking up in the vacuum. The back door of the vacuum bin pops off. The spiders fly backwards into our faces. Like they're just, we're just being pelted with spider bodies. They continue to scream. The kids bolt up the stairs. Sage runs right into a kitchen chair, which falls over, pinning her underneath. So she's screaming, pinned under her kitchen chair. (laughs) And I yell, I was just sort of like, it's so ridiculous that I'm amused. And I jokingly yelled, their backs, you cowards. (laughs) Because they were retreating from the pelting of spiders. And Silas just stopped at the bottom of the stairs and he turned to me and had like immediate tears in his eyes. And he said, I am a brave boy. (laughs) He like kept running upstairs. Then we like readjusted. I didn't get the big one. It just sort of slunk away. You know, it didn't even move fast. It was like, you guys are a disaster. Not worried. (laughs) I think about that story all the time when I think of Silas and being a brave I'm boy. I'm a brave boy. I know. I think about that. Like, good for like, you. You are. I had to apologize number to Number one characteristic. That I was joking and it wasn't a funny joke and, yeah, you know, that I wouldn't do that again. And I think that it's really natural to be like, you're so smart. Mm-hmm. You're so talented. Like, And I don't know if that's because that's what I heard right. or, you know, like that when I got praise, it was like that. It wasn't a – I see you worked really hard on that. That wasn't right. what I heard. So maybe – it's my model of providing compliments as a parent. I find it really hard to yeah. not do that because actually I also believe it. You know, like it's not like I'm just trying to boost their self-confidence. They do a picture, uh, make a picture and I'm like, that is great. I right. really <laughs> like it. <laughs> this is so I'm trying to be. Oh. I do think there's a lot of anxiety around like, what are all the things I need to do? How do I prioritize? Right. I don't know. We'll see what Angela has to say about that. <laughs>
Angela, we're so excited to talk to you today. I read your book, obviously, when it came out. And at that time, I think my son, when I read it, had just been born. And so it feels like I was working at Committee for Children already before I ever had children, thinking about how I would parent. And the reality is, it's hard to parent and keep all of those things in mind that you're supposed to, quote unquote. And I was saying how there was a list of 40 protective factors that we were using to discuss a program we'd created for middle school at the time I I joined. And I remember thinking, okay, I've got to remember these 40 things. And when I have kids, I'm going to do that. But now there's actually a million things to remember. And I was thinking those things also when reading Grit. I've actually quite literally this week been thinking about that very question. Like, how do people keep in mind all these, you know, oh, and here's another thing, you know, I mean, and every week there's like a new scientific insight, which is why I think there's a little bit of work to do. I think the last mile of getting a scientific insight into the life of a kid is actually a very long road because it's not just that you need to have more insights into how kids grow up to be healthy, happy, and helpful. You need more than that. And a system is in a way like a delivery for the last mile. If I had to have a checklist, right? So if I had mm-hmm. to have a system and you know something to organize all this, I would say there's a checklist of three kinds of capabilities that kids should be developing really at any age. And this does come from data collected from hundreds of kids, actually thousands of kids who took behavioral inventories with lots of different items on them. But there are three families of capabilities. I would call them character strengths, but I think a lot of people would call them social emotional competencies or, you know, sometimes in business, they're called like 21st century skills. But the first group is really about interpersonal capabilities like kindness and empathy, generosity. And I would also include things like honesty in this category because this enables you to lead a harmonious life with other people. And you don't need these capabilities if you're on a desert island, but we don't live on desert islands. When people say like, oh, I want you to be a good person, I actually think that's what we mean, you know, when we say things like that to our kids. The second category that clusters together in data and is, again, you know, applicable across the lifespan are what I would call intellectual capabilities like creativity and curiosity, intellectual humility. I mean, these are really the learning strengths. And they are, of course, what you're supposed to go to school for. But I think paradoxically, we find that, you know, for a lot of young people, it's what happens naturally when you're very young and before you go to kindergarten. And then, you know, it seems that like something about the formal schooling experience like tends to work against curiosity, yeah. creativity, imagination. Right. This is like, you know, you're really articulating. You're really articulating my core anxiety. I have a kid about to start kindergarten and he's so curious and engaged and Mm -hmm. just interested in everything, naturally excited about learning. And I have this fear about because I remember what it was like. But strengths of mind, I think, are the second thing. So strengths of heart that help you get along with other people, strengths of mind that help you develop into an independent thinker. And then the final thing on my checklist of three, I used to be a McKinsey consultant, so we were taught to Mm -hmm. always think of threes. Mm -hmm. So the third thing is, as a scientist, is what I study most, so strengths of will. So things like delay of gratification and self-control, grit, having a growth mindset, being optimistic in the face of failure. And this is, I call them the strengths of will, but sometimes I think of them as like the doing strengths, right? Like when kids have goals of any kind, I mean, they have to accomplish them and it's not easy or automatic. So if you asked me, 
how does a parent like make sense of just the explosion in scientific research and and how do they do anything with it with their kids? I would say every day, think to yourself, how is my child developing strengths of heart? How are they developing strengths of mind? And how are they developing strengths of will? Excellent. That's an amazing framework. I know. <laughs> oh, Angela, where were you 20 years ago? <laughs> We'd love to hear more for those few people right. who may who have not experienced that popularity that your book took on and, and your TED Talk and those sorts of things. Those few people that don't know what grit is, how do you define that? I define grit as a combination of two things. One is perseverance. And that's kind of the obvious, you know, you think of John Wayne or, you know, whatever, like, oh, gritty, you know, somebody who struggles oh, in the face of grit. adversity yeah. and keeps going. Yeah, exactly. True grit, which my daughter was literally just watching. And I was looking over her shoulder and I was like, oh my gosh, I hope your history teacher did not assign that. I know for myself as a mother, it's like what I'm thinking about actually more than perseverance these days, which is passion. You know, the people that I've studied that are high achievers, and this is how I got to study grit in the first place. I wanted to reverse engineer super achievers like Katie Ledecky, right? Like what does Katie Ledecky have in common with, you know, Nobel Prize winning economists and with musicians, you know, who have won Grammys and so forth? Like what is the through line for high human achievement? And I discovered that this combination of perseverance and passion over extended time periods was a common denominator. And, and I think it's because, you know, to accomplish anything in life that's worthwhile, and I'm sure you could reflect on this. I mean, even creating this podcast and, you know, for me, my scientific work, it it takes a long time. And the people who give up early or uh, in terms of lack of passion, who never get fully committed and then maybe, you know, one year into it or, you know, however long it is that they get distracted by something else or they lose interest. So lack of passion being the other challenge sometimes for high achievement, this either lack of perseverance or lack of passion derails people. And I think when you're talking about someone who's about to go to kindergarten or, you know, my kids are in high school or thinking about earlier in adolescence, you know, what is their job? Well, yes, they do need to learn a work ethic. Yes, they do need to learn to be resilient. But also, and first and foremost, I would say, they need to discover their interests and they need to develop an understanding of their values so that one day they can wake up and say, hey, you know, I love what I do. I love what I do. And I'm going to do it with all my heart and I'm going to do it for a long time. I mean, I'll say that the follow your passion phrase is, I think, quite dangerous in a way, or at least it's misleading. And I think that's partly because when you say like, oh, follow your passion, I mean, people look at you wide eyed, like, wait a second, I don't even have a passion. I must really yeah. be in trouble. I think that the better way to to think about it is to foster a passion, right? Because it's not like you follow a passion like, oh, it's like, oh, you know, Northwest, like go that way, Google it. Like that's not actually how passion develops psychologically. It actually takes years for people to typically, I know there's probably exceptions, but I think typically the development of a very strong commitment, like an identity relevant goal, like this is who I am, it just doesn't happen overnight. But I think the dangerous part of that message is it does feel like, oh, it's like just out there. You have to find it the day you find it. It'll be very clear. It's much more gradual. And I think the job for kids is to explore as many interests as they can in this spirit of experimentation, but also to recognize that what they're doing over years is developing, like fostering a growing love for something. 
My younger daughter, Lucy, is, you know, on this 94 degree day, like baking pies. Mm -hmm. When I think about grit and the way that you've described it in your book, I have a lot of questions about really what you think of as success or achievement in that context, whether success was money or graduation or being the best in your field. I think success is actually, you know, your own attainment of your own personally defined goals. And I think the focus on achievement more narrowly, right? Like what school you got into and, you know, did you graduate and what did you accomplish and what awards have you won? I will tell you what I tell my own daughters, right? Which is that first and foremost, I hope that they develop these strengths of heart because it is more important to their mother that they be good people than great people. The second thing I say after a pause to make sure they really understood the first thing, right? Better to be honest and get a C than to be dishonest and get an A, right? So make sure they get that message loud and clear. But in terms of success and achievement, I tell them that really what their dad and I are really interested in is that they have a taste of excellence in their lives. And it is important for us that they um, learn to achieve their goals. Does that mean that they have to go to a certain school or that they would have a resume or, you know, that they'll have an impressive job at a cocktail party? You know, it really doesn't. So, you know, we have tried to tell our younger daughter who's baking, you know, if she decides not to go to college, to go into restaurants right away or like culinary school or, you know... Do whatever you want to do, but whatever you do, you know, really try to be as excellent as you can be. Because I think that the human desire to be competent, to have high standards and to achieve them for yourself, not for other people, I think is actually ingrained in all of us. And so I hope my daughters are ambitious in that way, even if it doesn't, you know, translate into some outward, easily measured metric of achievement. Just kind of following up, but there's also this other piece about being able to feel good about what you're doing in the world, feeling like you have a purpose. And I've heard you talk a bit about purpose, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about that as the companion. You know, when you think about achieving a certain goal, you know, it may or may not be a purposeful goal. So what is a purposeful goal? A purposeful goal is a goal that has an impact on people who are not you, right? So you could, for example, just for yourself, want to be able to run a five-minute mile, right? Like, it's just a personal goal. It's really important to me. You know, that's not immoral. It's just, you know, your own personal goal. But when you talk about a purposeful goal that has meaning beyond yourself, these are things like wanting to bridge the achievement gap between, you know, poor and rich children, or it could be something you know, really close to heart. Like, you know, you have a neighbor who you can just tell isn't doing well, and you just really want to help them. If you ask me about, you know, what I see as like really the secret to happiness, it is very hard to find a person who is actively pursuing purposeful beyond the self goals, you know, who's depressed and unhappy with their life. And so when I find these people who are, you know, pursuing goals that are beyond the self, you know, sometimes they're very rich, sometimes they're very poor, but they're all extremely gratified. I mean, they feel like life is abundant. And so it's one of those paradoxes. You know, I actually think one of the challenges, one of the problems, I'll just say it, you know, more candidly, like with the way American childhoods are designed, it's they're very selfish. It's like, oh, you know, you're going to learn to read and write for yourself. You're going to learn to go to college. I hope you get a high SAT score for yourself. You know, that will help you get a better job for yourself. But I think human nature is very hardwired to actually care about other people. And I think young people of all ages, you know, five, six, 15, 17, you name the age, these girls and boys in our lives, our children, they want to contribute to other 
people's lives. And that's not just my observation. There is solid scientific research showing that young people have a very strong and a very often unrequited desire to contribute meaningfully to the lives of others. We very rarely give them that opportunity or ask them to do that. Yeah. I found that to be true when my son was young or even all the way through his education up until he went to college, that he was most engaged when he was working on something that wasn't just, you know, his own schoolwork or grades. It was yeah. when it was something that was meaningful for and, the class or the community. Or with other yeah. people. Like he really enjoyed theater. So it wasn't it's not just about yourself. You part of a company mm-hmm. <laughs> of actors. Yeah. And if you don't do your part, they can't do their part. And so it's mm-hmm. um, And there's an audience. You're doing it for them too. Yeah. Right. You're working towards something. I think that's why studying is so hard. You know, we tell our kids to study and you know, studying is like a solitary activity. And, you know, honestly, if you don't study, it's like, well, you won't get a good grade or, but nobody else will suffer. But if you're on stage crew or if you're part of a production or if you're like on a sport, like, you know, on a football team and you don't do your part, then very immediately somebody else is in trouble. And there's this terrific random assignment experiment that was done by a group of psychologists led by someone named David Yeager at University of Texas, Austin. And he randomly assigned kids to basically frame their schoolwork as um, purposeful or not purposeful. And the way he did it was he just asked these adolescent students, when you look around at the world, you know, you might find things that really make you mad. You know, what is it about the world that you would want to fix? And kids wrote about racism. Kids wrote about the trash in their neighborhood. Kids wrote about grownups, you know, allowing the climate to degrade like in their lifetimes. And and then the next question was, think about what you're learning like right now in school. You know, try to make a connection. What would be a way? I mean, he did it very subtly and very cleverly. Like, how could you use what you're doing in school to actually fix some of these problems in the world that you see. And it was just that little bit of reflection and writing that enabled kids to actually increase their academic effort. They actually improved their performance in school according to uh, you know official grades. And I think that's the kind of thing that we really should pay attention to, right? If that is activating a you know deep drive in young people to be helpful, to contribute, then, you know, I just think it has huge implications, you know, for parenting and also for schools. So you say grid is a predictor of success. What is the right context for kids to develop grit and what can adults do to support that? So I'll give you three predictors, and they're each of a certain kind, because, you know, I gave you this checklist, you know, as a parent, I think about my kids' strengths of heart, strengths of mind, strengths of will, but for any strength, right, say gratitude is a strength of heart that I want them to develop, or grit is a strength of will, like, you could ask, like, what are the precursors? Like, how do you get there? What are the ingredients in the recipe? And I think there's always three kinds of ingredients for any character strength. So so one is mindsets. You know, they're actually a very specific scientific term. I'll give you the definition because I don't think everyone knows it. A mindset is a belief. A mindset is a belief that you carry around with you, whether you're consciously aware or not, but you have a theory essentially about how the world works and how human nature works. And these mindsets can be adaptive or less adaptive, and they can be accurate or less accurate. So the mindsets that underlie grit are about growing your own abilities. In particular, Carol Dweck at Stanford has shown that this growth mindset, the belief 
that your intelligence can change is remarkably important in the face of challenge. And in my work, I find that when you measure growth mindset in kids, and then you later measure their grit, and then you later measure their mindset, and you later, and you keep doing this over and over again, what you find is that mindset, a growth mindset leads to grit, grit leads to growth mindset, growth mindset leads to grit. It's a virtuous cycle. And what that means in the life of a kid, say a child who's about to enter kindergarten, is that if they really believe that their abilities, you know, to do math, to read, to, you know, to play a sport well, that those abilities are malleable, that they can grow and change. And having a bad day doesn't mean that you're always going to have a bad day, then that will lead them to persist longer in the face of setbacks, to be grittier. And that will lead them to have more of a growth mindset because they've kind of proven to themselves that this theory is correct. So a mindset that is adaptive is part of character development. So mindsets are belief, but skills are things that you can do after lots of practice and feedback. So a mindset is, you know, important, but it's not the only thing you need. You also need certain skills. And for grit, one of the skills that kids need is the skill actually of, of taking feedback. It's not automatic that like, you know, all of us, you know, know how to take negative feedback in particular or positive feedback, by the way, in the most constructive way. So, for example, when many of us get negative feedback, self-included, I'm defensive, right? If I ask you after this podcast, hey, what's one thing I could do better? And you tell me you could have spoken more about this or sometimes you say you like or you know too much. My immediate response will be to be defensive and to ignore you, to protect my ego. But kids can learn the skill of getting feedback. And I think that that is, in fact, exactly why we send our kids to play sports and to, you know, uh, practice a musical instrument with a teacher, because we know they need practice getting feedback. And that skill is not something that develops overnight. I mean, it takes years of ongoing practice to develop any skill. And I think that is a lesson. So if you want your kids to be grateful, you want them to be creative, you want them to be gritty, you shouldn't expect that this happens overnight because certain skills that underlie gratitude or creativity or grit or any other character strength, I mean, they they take honestly ongoing practice and that's why parenting takes so long. <laughs> so the third precursor to any character strength, including grit, is the right environment. And you, you said this. So what are the physical, you know, the objective physical circumstances that kids need? Well, frankly, they are the objective physical circumstances, you know, the schools they go to, the teachers they have, the friends they hang around with, the playing fields they get to be on that are typically supportive and demanding. What does that look like? It looks like tough love. So an environment, a school, a classroom, a teacher who is supportive and demanding has very high expectations. The child will not be asked to do things that they can already do. The child will be asked to do things they can't yet do. And that's very hard. It means they won't get 100% on everything. And at the same time, it's uh, supportive so that you go back to your teacher who did not give you 100% and you know that that teacher only wants one thing, which is for you to succeed and that you know that your teacher has confidence in you. There is a calculus professor, again, at UT Austin named Ori Treisman. He has a supportive and demanding classroom. He has a policy, for example, that if he ever gives a test where a student gets 100%, he actually apologizes to the student in front of everyone else. I am sorry. As your professor, I have failed to challenge you. I will try harder in the next exam to create something that really honors and respects your intellect because I never want to give you anything where you can do 100%, right? That is a supportive and demanding teacher. Um, and I think that's what we should all aspire to. 
Well, and think about like the sweat of all the perfectionists in the classroom. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the yeah. people who are they used to getting 100% all the time. Mm-hmm. Like that must be very yeah. stressful. He must have mm-hmm. a way, though, to deal with that, right? Because that would cause a lot of anxiety for a lot of kids, people, anybody. I think that's why, you know, the tough and the love have to go together. You know, tough without love is not good, right? Love without tough isn't good either. As the mother of two daughters, I will say, and also as somebody who was, you know, a little bit perfectionist herself, and I still have those tendencies, like, you know, how do you deal with that? And how do you, because you're telling kids um, to strive for excellence, and at the same time, you're telling them, like, not to be perfectionist. I mean, it sounds contradictory, right? Like, wait, you just told me to try to get to 100%, and now (laughs) you're also telling me, like, not to freak out if I don't get 100%. And I know it's very nuanced, but I, I myself will say that I had to learn this. I went to Harvard as, you know, a lot of young people who get there, you like immediate feel like imposter syndrome. You know, my roommate, you know, she was beautiful. Like she, she had flown an airplane across the country. She started her own company. I mean, she was only 18, right? I was like, oh yeah. my God, <laughs> I just am this like kid from Cherry Hill, New Jersey who has done nothing. I mean, a professor actually at Harvard gave me really good advice, you know, during a time where I was also sort of like trying to be perfect, but also not figuring out what I wanted to do very well and therefore being really unhappy. And this professor named Kay Merseth, she said to me, Angie, I want you to know that like life is not about being perfect. You know, you always want to do like the one perfect thing, but that's not life. Life is telling a story and your job is to tell a story that you're proud of. And I think that's the message for our kids. Like, you know what? Like your life is telling a story. Today, you get to write a new page. Try to tell a story that you're proud of, but it will not be a perfect story. You're giving me a new uh, perspective. I had a an English teacher in high school, and I'd always excelled in that. And she told us our first day that we, we did writing portfolios that they would then rank at the state level. And she said she would never give the highest ranking unless something was publishable to, you know, sophomores in high school, like, don't expect that you will get a distinguished or whatever Mm. it was, because it must be publishable for me to give you that. And I remember being so mad at her, like, like thinking (laughs) you're like, what is the point? Maybe there wasn't as much love there as there should have been. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask. I was going to feel that story. I mean, I think actually, like the the spoken policy, like you're never going to get a hundred, maybe at least. Like I don't know about not getting an A, and it only really does actually work in its magical powers. I think when there is also the love behind it. I mean it has to be candor as a form of caring. The lazy way out is just to say like, it's fine, right? That's easier for me. But I care about you too much. You know, I believe in you too much. I see too much potential. You know, I study coaches also and like sports coaches, having never played a sport, I never got into that. But I'm fascinated by these coaches. And it is truly what they do. And They use candor as a form of caring, as my good friend Dan Coyle, the author might put it. I want to get back to growth mindset. And so many educators and so many parents are understanding these concepts more and more now. And you did, I believe, your TED Talk in maybe 2013 that has become so popular, over 17 million views. And I'm wondering if anything has changed for you since 2013. You know, it's funny you asked me that today because just a couple days ago, I watched my own TED Talk for the first time in years. (laughs) And I think I had because, you know, yet another parent had told me with glee that they had made their kids watch my TED Talk. And I was like, you know what? I haven't watched that TED Talk in a really long time. I'm going to go see what it says. You know, in 2013, the way I framed what we knew about grit as um, we know that it's important to success. We also know that it's not the same thing 
thing as IQ. But I ended my TED Talk by saying, look, we know so little about how to increase grit. We know a little bit because we know about the work on growth mindset, which seems to increase grit, but that's about it. Now, since 2013, you can't really just think about your kid as, you know, existing in some kind of free form space. It's it's actually really matters, you know, socially and physically, the environment um, in which they are. And I guess the most exciting thing I will say is that more and more parents are actually asking questions that I think are very scientifically sophisticated. So I think of parenting as actually having a science behind it, much like modern medicine. You know, that's really new. That's kind of happening in our lifetimes. I think if you ask parents 100 years ago whether science was going to make, you know, being a mom and a dad better, you know, they wouldn't even know what you're talking about. When you mention a supportive and demanding culture, I'm curious, how do you know? As a, let's say you're a parent, your child is entering school. What would I see when I walked in there? What would I hear that would tell me that I was in an environment that would foster growth mindset and grit? Kids can tell you. I mean, they will tell you, oh, you know, for demanding, you know, they will tell you about, you know, the expectations that their parents set and whether those um, expectations are consistent or not. I mean, that's a big part of being demanding is having consistency in your requests as opposed to inconsistency, which I'm definitely guilty of more than I'd like, you know, on caring. You know, there are questions about like, you know, do you really feel like, you know, you're um, listened to when you're speaking to your mom? Like, you know, do you feel like, you know, you're understood? Do you feel like your opinion matters or does it not? And I think that is the easiest way you can find these scales on the internet. I mean, obviously, I reprinted the scale that I'm talking about in my book. So that's how you would do it directly. But in terms of walking around, you know, just like walk around a school and like, what would you see? What would you hear? I think that with parents and teachers who are truly supportive, they actually spend a lot of time listening to kids. And so what you would hear in classrooms, for example, that have this dimension of really respecting and supporting kids is that you would have teachers really asking kids, open-ended questions and really listening to them as opposed to just lecturing at them straight, like a wall of words from 50 minutes of a class period. In terms of being demanding, you know, if you saw the classwork that was being passed back, you would not see all perfect scores. You would see lots of comments in the margins. I'll give you an example of the opposite of that. You know, several years ago, one of my daughters got her essay back in her English class and and had 100% at the top and no comments. And I looked at it and I said, Lucy, you are a perfect writer. You have nothing to learn. This is a perfect essay. There is nothing that could be improved. And we both just started laughing because, you know, you really do want a demanding teacher who, again, in the spirit of love and in the spirit of like, I care about you, takes the time to say, you know, this introduction was a little slow. Like, I think this is a run on sentence. You know, I actually think you need a paragraph break here. So I think you would see lots of comments from teachers about specifically what kids could do to do better. You mentioned the grit scale in your book, which me and I both, oh, <laughs> to, yeah. before we yeah, that's good. started our conversation with you, where do you fall? How'd you do? You? Well, I want to um, know what you did. How did you, how were okay, you? Okay. No, we'll, we'll tell you because I have no shame. I did 2.8, Angela. Oh, wow. 2. That surprises me. Yeah. And what about you? I got a 4.3. That doesn't surprise <laughs> me knowing Andrea, but I'm going to tell you <laughs> that my job here, which you probably don't know this. But my job here is that I'm the uh, vice president of innovation and I run a team that is constantly doing new things. So when I have to look at a questionnaire and say, do you often, you know, spend a year on something and then do something else? The answer is absolutely yes. That is what I do. 
you know, it's not a perfect questionnaire. There are no perfect lives and there are no perfect questionnaires either. So the questionnaire is flawed in the sense that that item is really supposed to suggest like, is, is there not a through line? Is there not like some thematic consistency to what you're caring about? So innovation, for example, for a venture capitalist or for, you know, somebody who like you who leads innovation in a nonprofit, we can know context or a journalist, you know, obviously a journalist is doing a new story every week, but there's a through line. And there are people who don't have that through line. I mean, they really are. I get their emails all the time. And when they describe their lives to me, you know, I, I got really interested in this woodworking and like, you know, I just like bought all these tools and like, you know, put them in my basement. They're sitting there gathering dust. And then I got really into triathlon And then, you know, I decided not to do that. <laughs> So I think the through line is what I was trying to capture as imperfectly as I did, but that's what it was supposed to be. You know, it continues to be uh, hard to write an item that captures what really takes a paragraph to explain. And I'll give you a homework assignment. And honestly, anybody's listening, I think this is a great homework assignment. I give it to CEOs and sports coaches all the time, which is that I think it's very useful to go home and in 10 words or fewer, try to write down your through line. I would call it your top level goal. And that is something that you could say, like, this is my North Star. Like when I said yes to doing that podcast, when I took 15 minutes to like take this front, like it was because it is in service of this mission that I have for my life professionally, right? For many of us, you know, parenting is a separate category. But for me, my top level goal is to use psychological science to help kids thrive. And that is why I am on your podcast. When your email came to me, I just used a very simple decision rule. Will being, you know, in this conversation help you psychological science to help kids? Yes. So the answer is yes. But there are many emails that come through, you know, could you endorse this product? Would you like to meet this famous person? You know, could we sell this? Could we monetize that? And the answer is no, because it does not use psychological science to help all kids thrive. So it's a great homework assignment, I think. It's challenging. But I think even if you can't do it with satisfaction, to, to come back to that exercise, you know, maybe a month later and, you know, put it on your Google calendar that you're going to try because once you have that, it is tremendously clarifying to you how you should be spending your time. And really, to me, like this is a way of clarifying your purpose. That's a great homework assignment to leave us and our listeners with. I have really just one final question, and then we'd love to hear more about where people can learn more about Grit, about you, about Character Lab. My final question is, you talked about having the, in character strengths, the heart category, and that kindness kind of fit in there. It's not always part of the conversation when people are discussing you know, goal attainment, grit, growth That's mindset. Right. So why do you think kindness is important? Kindness is probably more important than anything. I am old enough to remember the days when banks used to give out those little like calendars. I remember my dad brought one home. It was like extra. So I started using it to put in, it was in high school and I would, you know, write down my homework assignments, but every week had a new quote. And I remember one week, the quote was from Isaac Besheva Singer. And the quote was, two things are important in life, a genuine interest in people and kindness. Kindness is everything. And nobody asked me to, but I memorized that quote and I thought about it a lot when I was 
in college. And then when I was deciding to go into teaching and do things that my, frankly, my dad stopped talking to me for months because he thought, you know, oh my God, you know, why are you doing public service? Like, that's not what I sent you to Harvard for. And kindness is everything. I mean, really, I mean, what parent could possibly look at their beautiful kids and say like, you know, there's anything more important than I want you to be kind to other people. So I hope it gets more attention and play. I'm not a kindness researcher. So sometimes people say like, oh, you must think grit is the most important thing because it's what you publish on. But, you know, I'm a scientist who has a specialty, but as a parent and as a teacher, I will tell you that kindness really is everything. And maybe it's harder to get through the college admissions process in terms of, a, you know, there isn't a kindness score on your application. And, you know, maybe you won't win a MacArthur Award for being kind because, you know, people don't know how to count that. But it, it is the most important thing. And I think that's why parents really have to take responsibility here. If there aren't as many, you know, gold stars for kindness and honor rolls for kindness that exist in the world, then as parents, we have to triple our emphasis on this because we do want our kids to get the right message. Angela, you have offered up so many pieces of wisdom that my note paper here, it's like, it's going down the margins. <laughs> Yay, <laughs> that's good. Like, <laughs> life is telling a story, <laughs> you know, all of it. This has been so amazing. Where can our listeners learn more about Character Lab and your work? They can go to characterlab.org. It's a, a free website. There are top researchers who are doing the cutting edge research on science that can help kids. The scientists write for an audience of parents and teachers. You know, here's what the science says about these character strengths. And here's what you can do as a parent to model, celebrate and enable these character strengths. And in addition, when you go to characterlab.org, you can sign up for an ad-free email newsletter. I call it my thought of the week. And that is what I write. It's designed to give you one scientific insight that you can put into practice that week as a parent or as a teacher. And I think of it in a way as a 60-second sermon. Or I sometimes think of it as just like one little teaspoon of science that hopefully, you know, has enough storytelling in it to make it go down smoothly. Fantastic. It has really been a treat talking to you yeah, today. It's been a pleasure. Thank, Thank you so much. You so much. Oh my gosh, she's so amazing. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Angela Duckworth, CEO of Character Lab. You can find more episodes at growkinderpodcast.org. And if you enjoyed our conversation today, make sure to rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Stitcher.